I don't care how smart you are, you're not perfect. You're not perfect. And a lot of times there is somebody that you need to listen to that might have a better idea. I'm Carly Zakin. I'm Danielle Weisberg. Welcome to Skim from the Couch. This podcast is where we go deep on career advice from women who have lived it. From the good stuff like hiring and growing a team to the rough stuff like negotiating your salary and giving or getting hard feedback. We started the skim from a couch, so what better place to talk it all out than where it began on a couch? Today, Linda Johnson-Rice joins me on Skimmed from the Couch. She is the CEO of Johnson Publishing Company, which published Ebony and Jet magazines. Johnson Publishing helped give a voice to millions and chronicled the African-American experience across the country. Linda has also served on numerous corporate and philanthropic boards, including the Chicago Public Library, Omnicon Group, Grubhub, Tesla, and the Smithsonian's National Museum of African-American History and Culture. Linda, thank you so much for coming on the show. Welcome to Skimmed from the Couch. Thank you for having me, Carly. I'm excited to be here. I'm so excited to have you here. So I think, you know, the first question, we we start with the same one every show. Skim your resume for us. Uh, (laughs) I most certainly am happy to do that. I am still the CEO of Johnson Publishing Company, so that is great. And it is that the founding company for Ebony and Jet magazines and Fashion Fair Cosmetics all started by my family. And for better or for worse, I have never worked anyplace else. And so I I grew up in the business, grew up in in the magazine business, in the publishing business, and also in the beauty business, but always surrounded by incredible people, great parents, but great staff who are very uplifting and all about aspiration and inspiration for the African-American community. So I I grew up in the business. I went to, um, born and raised in Chicago, got my degree in journalism from USC and then came back and got uh, my master's in management from Northwestern. And I got my master's in management. It's so funny. I started out full-time in school. And then I switched and I went part-time. So it took me longer, but I really wanted to work at the same time. And I, you know, had the luxury to be able to do that. A lot of people don't have that, but I did because I wasn't looking for a job. Once I got my my degree, I already knew where I was going to be. And actually, once I, I got my master's in management, I actually became president of the company like the very next day. But I do want to stress one thing that I think is really important here. And that is, I have worked in a family business, but it was not a given that I was just going to step into this role. And if, you know, if you knew anything about my parents, it was nothing was a given. You really had to earn it. And so it does seem like, boy, that was a really fast trajectory, but uh uh-uh, this was decades and decades of work. I mean, I spent more time at a copy machine making copies and doing all kind of stuff that, you know, people do when you start out in in a company. I don't think that was any different for me. What is something that people would be surprised to know about you that is not in your professional bio? Oh my goodness. Let's see. On a personal side, I I love to ride. I have horses. I've owned horses all my life. So that is sort of my luxury. Right now I don't have one, but it's the way I can relax. And I studied opera. Wait, do you sing? Please don't ask me to sing. But I did. I studied opera for, for many years and took voice lessons and, and loved it. Absolutely loved it. All right. We're going to dive into the family business. Tell me about your family. Tell me about your parents. 
So, you know, my parents, John and Eunice Johnson, were part of the Great Migration of African-Americans from the South to the North. So my father came from Arkansas, my mother came from Alabama. And very different backgrounds. This is so, uh, it's really interesting. My, my father came from nothing. And when I say nothing, his town, great people, but only 668 people there. His mother believed in him so much and she just, you know, the love that she had for him, she poured into just him. And so for her, the best thing for him was to get out of Arkansas City, Arkansas and get an education. And the way to do that was, you know, they they got on the train and they came to Chicago. They had relatives in Chicago. So a lot of people with the migration from Arkansas, people came to Chicago, Alabama, they came to Chicago. My mother came from Alabama. So my father, dirt poor, came to Chicago, went to high school, became head of the debating team, editor of the school paper, graduated, attended the University of Chicago. And my mother, on the other hand, came from a background where, you have to think about this, her father was a surgeon. Her mother was a school teacher in Selma, Alabama. So obviously, black, African-American, back then, prominent family. Her two brothers were surgeons. Her sister was a PhD professor in English. And my mother came to Chicago to get her master's in social service at Loyola. So now you've got these two converging people now, completely different backgrounds, you know, and, and they met at a dance. My parents met at a dance. And my father, I remember him saying, you know, I asked your mother, you know, at the dance, could I take her home? And my mother said, absolutely not. <laughs> absolutely not. And she said, I'm going home with the person that brought me. And so for my father being the maverick entrepreneur and salesman, oh, that was game on. That was it. He was ready to go. So anyway, so they met and they got married. And what I would say about my parents is that they both had a discipline and a drive and a determination to show the world the beauty and the success and the inspiration of the African-American community. And they started that at a very young age. I mean, you know, my father started working at a life insurance company and then he had an idea for a magazine. And he loved journalism. And he really patterned Ebony off of Life magazine, which is now, you know, defunct. But that's really where it started. And my, my mother was stuffing subscri subscription envelopes in the basement. And that's how they started the business. This is in 1942. I love that so much. And I'm so curious, how did sort of the spirit of entrepreneurship show up in your childhood? How did it show up at, at home? You know what? I think it was everything that my parents did, everything that they encapsulated, whether it was, you know, starting Ebony or for my mother, you know, starting Fashion Fair Cosmetics, she started, and then having what was called the Ebony Fashion Fair Fashion Show. That's what she started in 1958, which was a traveling fashion show. And it went to a different city every night for charity and raised over $55 million for African-American charities. You could see them all the time coming up with ideas, but all of it centered around the African-American community and the betterment for the African-American community. So that's what I grew up in. True or false, I read that you were taking notes in business meetings with your parents at age seven. <laughs> I 
don't know about that. But what I will say, what I will say is that I started going to the office probably when I was about six or seven. So I would be running around, and I'm sure annoying the heck out of everybody there, because I was popping in the editor's offices and then going into what was at the time the art department, which now we call graphic design, I was always present. And interestingly enough, as I grew older, neither one of my parents ever said to me, we want you to come and work in the family business. They never said that. But I went there every day as as a kid and it was fun and then it became fascinating and then you started to realize the media business is a very enticing business and you're meeting people that you know you would never be able to meet under you know normal circumstances come on i'm young i'm meeting the jackson 5 i mean really Really? This is Michael Jackson sitting next to me. I mean, it seems trivial, but it really isn't. In my lifetime, I've been able to go to Nelson Mandela's home and sit next to him in his library and have him talk to me about his book, A Long Walk to Freedom. So these are things that, you know, that help shape me. You started off today talking about how you were able to get a business school degree while also learning the business. Where do you think you learn the most, school or in the office observing? Wow, that's a tough question, but it's a bit of a trade-off because I would say I learned the most really working with my father because I think when you are sort of learning at the foot of the master, it's a priceless experience and it's a knowledge that really goes beyond a degree. But what I would say about Northwestern, which I loved, is Northwestern was great because it gave me structure and it gave you a sense of how to think critically. And that sort of critical and strategic thinking, I think, was is very important. That was very important in helping me make, make decisions and shape decisions. And it was interesting because sometimes, you know, you'd have ideas that were a little bit different than what John Johnson thought. <laughs> but, you know, my father and I always agreed to disagree on things. Sometimes I won. Most of the time, honestly, he won. <laughs> but that's that's cool. That was cool. But I, I learned a lot at Northwestern, but you really learn from really working. We talk about this a lot on the show and we get asked this a lot, like, should I go to business school? So when somebody comes to you today and says, should I go get my MBA? What is your advice? I would have to ask them, what do you really want to do? Because it depends on what road you're going down. You may be in an area that you don't need a business degree because it's it's a little bit different now. I mean, when people are coming out of school now, they don't necessarily want to be, you know, lawyers or work for consulting companies. And they're doing things that are so vastly different. And if you want to work for a nonprofit, you don't necessarily have to have a business degree for that. So I think it really depends on what the person really wants to do. Is it great to get a business degree? Of course. Of course it is, because that is just one more notch in your belt. Um, and actually, one of the reasons that I did it was, was because it validated me. It validated me outside of my company. It validated me outside of somebody looking at me and saying, oh, well, of course you work there. Of course you're going to be president. You're John and Eunice Johnson's daughter. Of course. No, that wasn't the case. That was not the case. I had to earn that. But I think it's a hard question to answer because I think it depends on what the person wants to do. I really do. 
We talk a lot on this show about imposter syndrome, and I'm trying to imagine being you and having the opportunity to enter and grow into such an incredible business that is also a family business. Imposter syndrome for you would look very different than for somebody coming in who had no ties to to the family, and they might experience it in a very different way. But you just use the term kind of validation. Did you experience any of that with the non-family members in the organization? For sure. I mean, I, I have to be very honest here. I mean, and I think if people are really honest with themselves, I think there are very few people that haven't experienced imposter syndrome. And sometimes you get into a meeting or you get into a situation and you think, oh, geez, am I over my head here? But this is where you have to really pull from your gut and believe in yourself and what you're doing. But of course, we all experience imposter syndrome. Let me tell you, I remember the first corporate board I served on, and I was probably 25 years younger than every single person in the room. And every single person in the room was a white man. And if that doesn't give you imposter syndrome for at least a moment, I don't know what what does. But I managed to get over that because I started to understand the business and learn the business and was able to contribute. In those moments, whether it was in the boardroom or even just, you know, in the office, literally in that moment, what do you do? You know, something has to click in your mind that says, okay, I got this. I got, you just have to keep, I I got this. And you have to move forward. The worst thing is to sit there and second guess yourself. Oh my God, you'll lose your mind. Everyone will see you losing your mind. And that's not good. (laughs) That's not where you want to be. So you really have to almost gather yourself quickly and just say, you know what? All right, I got this. I'm just going to go forward here. I'm going to go forward here. You know, and sometimes that's risky. You know, sometimes it can mean that you, you may not be saying the right thing all the time. When you took over as CEO, you obviously are taking over a legacy business at that point. How did you think about reinventing the business or, you know, to put it a different way, how did you think about taking your family's legacy and, and making it your own? It was not easy because the family legacy is so looms so large and this, it does in a lot of family businesses. But I also think you have to really look around and see where is this business headed? And for us and for Johnson Publishing, it was very, very difficult. Carly, I mean, it was tough because we were in the media business. We were in the magazine business, not the media business, the magazine business, which was having a seismic shift. And it was a shift that was not in a positive way. What was the first big decision you had to make? Well, one of them was, was, and this goes so far back and people won't even probably not be able to relate to it, but maybe. We used to have a department for subscriptions for the magazine. And we had people sitting at terminals inputting subscriptions. How, after a while, inefficient does that become? Unbelievably inefficient. So you got to outsource that. But at that stage, those were 40 people that had watched me grow up in the business. They had seen me since I, you know, a lot of these people were long-term employees, so they had been there some 30-odd years or more. And, you know, they watched me when I was, you know, 8, 9, 10 years old, and now I'm their boss. Now I'm the CEO. And I have to tell them that their businesses are gone. Those skill sets are gone. And that was extremely difficult. And I remember discussing it with my father saying, saying we have to outsource this. And he finally, he agreed with me, but he said to me, I'll never forget this. He said, 
Linda, I can't do this. These people helped me build my business. I can't do this, so you have to do this. And I did. And I remember that. I remember calling everybody together and telling them, you know, on a certain date, we're exiting this piece of the business and we're going to have to outsource it. And we were very, obviously, very supportive and did, I think, all of the right things that you should do in this circumstance and make sure that people, you know, have as soft a landing as possible, especially since this is a family business. So I, I remember that to this to this very day and how very difficult that was and how I had to really pull myself together to do that. But, you know, you make those tough decisions. But I've made many tough decisions like that. I mean, my father built the office building that we that we have on Michigan Avenue and I sold it. I had to sell it. And I realized that was a building that John Johnson built, but it became an albatross around us. I mean, as the business started to downsize, I can't keep a building or the business. Come on. You know, so these are tough decisions. As a manager, what did you want to emulate from your dad and what did you want to change? (laughs) Well, uh, the first thing I wanted to change was the short temper because that's not me. That's not me. But what I did want to emulate was he had an uncanny ability to be able to get people to really push themselves to do a great job and to and to think outside the box and say, you can do this, you can do this. And that I, I did take away from him because that I really did, did ad- admire and respect. But the short fuse, no, that's not me, but that's just a personality trait. That's a personality thing. But also, you know, I think he really got people to have a great passion for what they do and to be proud so proud. I mean, to this day, I run into people who worked at Johnson Publishing 30 and 40 years ago, and there's, they still have that. There's a sense of pride there. And so, and to also realize that what they were doing was making a lasting imprint and impression on the African-American community, and never forget that. Johnson Publishing Company has been one of the most important chroniclers of the Black experience in America. How did you think about shaping and defining the wider impact the company could and would have? I think a lot of it came from the staff and the people that we work with because the editors, you know, their tentacles reach farther and wider than mine do. And I think they would come back and they would bring great ideas and great stories and and stories that I think had, you know, significant impact, not just on our community, but also on America. Because, you know, the stories that we told were not just African-American stories, they were American stories. They were American stories. They were stories about, about success, stories about achievement, And so bringing that news to the forefront in a very accurate, and here's the key word, authentic way, authentic way, was key for us. As the world changed under your tenure, how did you think about how the impact and the mission would grow and how you could grow it? You know, I think the impact and the mission grew through the stories that we told and the way we told them and in the honest representation And also, you've got to reflect what's going on in the world. So the subjects that you write about obviously have to have some some resonance and some richness and be contemporaneous. And so, you know, that's what we tried to do. That is what we tried to do. 
But, you know, it was it was tough. You know, everyone was trying to figure out what does a digital space look like when it came to news, when it came to reporting, when it came to magazines. And so that part, I think, was was a tough, a tough flip for us. As a leader, how do you first for yourself and then second for your team and deputies embrace changes? And, you know, obviously the sort of extreme example, you know, you can talk about is going from print to digital, right? How do you first wrap your head around it? And then how do you bring people along? Well, first of all, I have to try to understand <laughs> what is out there. I mean, because I think as, as, as a leader, if you don't understand it, I don't know how you can ever explain it to your team. And then there's sometimes, honestly, when your team needs to be explaining it to you, when they need to be coming to you, and they and nine times out of 10, they usually will, when they come to you with, with things that need to be changed. And I, I felt that a lot within the company, and I embraced that. I embraced that. But I think the key also is you've got to have, I think, open lines of communication. And I think you have to be honest with people. You have to be honest. I mean, as this business was was changing and, and the magazine was suffering, I had to be honest. And, and here's the thing. This is no surprise. The people that are working there, they feel this. They feel it probably before you do. So I think you've got to be open and honest and have these great lines of communication with people. I admit that I have made mistakes before where I thought, oh, I can fix this. I can do this. I don't need to talk about this. And that was a mistake. That was a mistake. Ebony and Jet magazines were acquired by Clearview Group in 2016. You stepped down from the board of Ebony Media last year. Walk us through like that that decision, that process for you. I'm a sentimental person, so I'm like, you know, I save everything from my parents, my grandparents. So I can't imagine being one being in business with my parents as a whole. That could be its own podcast. But two, uh, being tasked with preserving that and then making really really tough business calls that are probably the right calls, but does, doesn't make it any less emotional. Yeah. You know, in 2016, I made a very gut-wrenching decision to sell Ebony and Jet. And let me tell you, this is what our foundation, our, our company was built on. So this is all I've, I've known. But I realized that it was such a drain on our other piece of business, which was Fashion Fair Cosmetics, that um, and it was a drain on the company, and there was no way to get around this. Let me tell you, I was in probably a dark place for quite a long time because trying it's an agonizing thing. And here's the here's the other issue that does happen in family businesses, I think, is that you you hang on and hang on and hang on because you just you you think you can make it and you think you can make it, and really all the signs are telling you that the business is not there. The business is no longer what it was. And so I made the decision to to sell it. But at the same time, now I am preserving the legacy of Johnson Publishing. So I am the legacy of Johnson Publishing, and that's just a fact because I'm John and Eunice Johnson's daughter. But aside from that, I'm working on two documentaries that have to do, uh, I I can give a high level, that have to do with, with the company. And they couldn't be more appropriate for the time that we're in right now. So that is my way of preserving this legacy. But let me tell you, this was a difficult, painful, 
gut-wrenching decision that I hope to never have to go through that again. Who do you lean on or who did you lean on as mentors to get you through that? One of the people in the company who had been with the business 55 years, she started out as my father's secretary and became our general counsel. And she became really an incredible sounding board because she knew so much about the company. She knew so much about my parents and and she knew me. And so I think she was terrific to really lean on, not only professionally, but personally, because you can't go through this stuff alone. You really can't. And I also had, I think, very smart and sharp friends who were personal friends. And then I had business friends, business friends and and advisors. How do you separate a business friend and a personal friend? So a business friend wouldn't necessarily hang out at my house. You know, we wouldn't necessarily be going to an art museum together or the theater. You wouldn't spend your personal time with them, but you trust their business advice. And in certain settings, I definitely have had some really, really, I think, sharp and smart business people who've who've given me advice. But in the end, I had to make the final decision. I had to make the final decision. And, you know, so many people had said, well, everybody's got an idea as to how you can fix things. And and then they're like, you know what? The business is at a point where you really do have to make some really tough decisions. And, you know, I'm sure, you know, they would have made them a lot faster, but it's easy to make them a lot faster when you're not in it. It's way easier. In terms of executive decision-making in general, are you someone that talks out loud? Are you someone that like, once you say it, it's like, no going back, the decision has been made? No, I, I talk it out. I like to bounce ideas off of people. Now, more than ever, I try to look around the corners and see what, you know, what else could be coming that um, is either positive or negative. But I like, I like to talk things out and I like to bounce ideas off of people. That works better for me. In a leadership position, I think this is something that Danielle and I have struggled with, which is how to, how to carve out in work the safe space for yourself as the leader to be able to talk out loud. Because inevitably, given your position, people pay attention to what you say, and that's great. And then also scary because it also makes you scared to sometimes just think about things out loud. What's your advice for leaders or aspiring leaders listening of how to carve out that, that safe space to think out loud? Be willing, first of all, to be a little bit vulnerable. <laughs> You have to be willing to be a little bit vulnerable and have ideas that maybe everybody isn't going to agree with. But at the same time, I think you have to have enough confidence in who you are. Not overly confident. That's There's a difference between overly confident and cocky and being, and being confident. We're not being arrogant. But I think you got to be a little, you got to be willing to be a little bit vulnerable, a little bit vulnerable. That safe space, you have to allow yourself that. None of us are perfect. None of us are. I don't care who we think we are. I don't care how smart you are. You're not perfect. You're not perfect. And a lot of times there is somebody that you need to listen to that might have a better idea. In our intro today, we talked about how many boards you're on. And you and I have spent a few hours talking about how to think about boards and board structure. And so you've been a great source of advice for Danielle and I. What is your sort of top advice to the management and the organizations whose boards you sit on? What is always the thing that you see people kind of make the same mistakes? Doesn't matter what type of organization. Well, I'm, I'm a big person on, on diversity and inclusion. I think that is critical to the health and growth and success of a company is that I think you have to be able to have a very diverse 
company, a diverse board. And that starts with the CEO. That starts with the leader at the top. And they have to have that. And then they get that buy-in for the rest of for the rest of the company. And I think you have to be sincere about what you're doing and authentic about what you're doing. That's always been my, you know, my champion. I've always tried to push that on on the boards that I've been on. And, and you know, and sometimes you're successful and sometimes you're not, but you can't be afraid to speak up about that. When you think about how you want people to describe your legacy, what, what do you hope they say? I would hope that they would say that she she did everything she could to preserve the business. And short of that, she made the best decisions that she could. Linda made the best decisions that she could. And at some point, you have to move on. You have to move on. You've got to move towards the future. You can't keep looking in the past. You have to move on to the future. I love that. That's a perfect transition to our very important lightning round segment. Morning person or night owl? Morning. Best work from home productivity hack? A cup of coffee in the morning. (laughs) Why do you think it's important to have female leaders in your industry? Oh, I think we all need role models that we can look up to. You've got to have somebody who is a reflection of you. Last TV show you streamed or binge watched? The Queen's Gambit. So good. I just finished it. It's great. Are you a good cook? Yes. What's the last dinner you made? I just did a broiled salmon with a little beurre blanc over it and a little shaved fresh garlic. But let me tell you, I wasn't always a cook. This COVID has forced me there. Beurre blanc. You're like, you're in Julia Child territory. (laughs) What is the worst professional mistake you've made? Oh my God. Not listening to people. I mean, just thinking, you know, oh, I got the, no, that's a big mistake. You got to listen. You got to listen. It's only where you're going to learn something. Last time you negotiated for yourself? It was for a speaking engagement. Did you get what you wanted? I did. Who is somebody we should have on the show? Oh my goodness. Michelle Obama. Well, yeah, do you know her? Can I talk to her? (laughs) (laughs) Yes, if you can facilitate that intro, that would be great. Okay, last question. Best advice your dad ever gave you? Uh, Failure is a word I do not accept. If you are trying, you are not failing. I love that. Linda, it's so good to see you. Thank you so much. Absolutely. I'm delighted. Hi, everyone. We're trying something new. During this time of economic uncertainty, we want to take a moment to spotlight some new female-founded companies. We've heard from many incredible skimmers who are leading small businesses, and we will be introducing them to you each week on Skim from the Couch. See the link in our episode description for how to submit yourself or a friend. My name is Shanae Jones. I'm an herbalist and the founder of Ivy's Tea Company, a hip-hop-inspired herbal tea brand. We're currently based in Laurel, Maryland, but thanks to our really good year, we're moving to our very first warehouse space, which is in Lanham, Maryland. Kind of despite COVID, but also because of COVID, um, a lot of people had been looking for herbal remedies and uh, herbal teas. So we were like right there where we needed to be in the sweet spot because we work really hard to keep herbalism and stuff like that, like super easy to understand, very trendy, very fun. So a lot of people were looking for things and not only do you find what you need, but you also get a good laugh when you come to our website. And then unfortunately with the George Floyd protests, uh, we had a huge surge of, of 
orders because a lot of people were looking for Black-owned businesses to support. And because we'd already been building momentum through COVID, um, a lot of people were like, oh, I know a tea company. And it just took off even more. Well, I started Ivy's Tea Company because of all the tea companies that are on the market. I didn't find anything that really represented me. And I used to spend a lot of money on tea. Like, I'm that girl that had a line item in her budget for Tivana. So I would go and just buy all the little balls of strawberry green tea that I could get. I was super obsessed. Uh, but I realized that a lot of the marketing and it just didn't seem like it was for me. And I felt like there was a gap in the space. I, I love hip hop music, I love hip hop culture. And I felt like it's used for everything. So why wouldn't I try to pair it with something that I really love, which is herbal tea? You all can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Ivy's Tea Co. And you can also find us online at ivystea.com. Thanks for hanging out with us. Join us next week for another episode of Skim from the Couch. And if you can't wait until then, subscribe to our daily email newsletter that gives you all the important news and information you need to start your day. Sign up at theskim.com. That's the S-K-I-M-M dot com. Two M's for a little something extra. 